There's a website called My Miserable Life, and it's a place for people to share stories about how terrible their lives are. I do not recommend you visiting that. It's painful to read. Um, let, let me just share a few of the tamer examples. Uh, 34-year-old Melissa wrote, I'm so tired of being poor. My husband's been unemployed for eight months and can't find work, and I'm disabled. Why does life have to hurt so bad? An anonymous 16-year-old said, I think God enjoys torturing me. A 40-year-old Massachusetts man wrote, I've destroyed my own life. I was happily single and then married my second wife, and now I'm suffering in a situation of my own making. Elizabeth was expecting a daughter, but the uh, baby's heart stopped two days before her due date. And Elizabeth writes, My husband and I sit in our empty house, wondering what we do now. Pain, misery. Human misery is not a new problem. We see it unfold in Scripture, and we see it unfold in this very short Old Testament book named Ruth. This four-week series in the book of Ruth is called Rescued because Ruth herself is rescued, and through her, God unleashes His plan to save the world. I've titled chapter one of Ruth, When Life is Miserable, because Ruth and her family go through all sorts of struggles here. Now, their amazing journey takes place about 3,000 years ago, during the time of Israel's judges, one of the darkest periods in the nation's history. And during this time when most of the nation was not following God, comes this story of one family. And from what happens to them, I want to point out to you this morning some causes of misery, some things that make life miserable that I'm sure you can identify with one or more of them. And then I want you to learn with me how God wants you to respond. It begins this way, Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So a famine in the ancient world would be caused by drought. And when we face drought conditions today, we have irrigation systems and refrigeration to keep us going and to be able to have food trucked in or shipped in or flown in from other places. But in the ancient world, it is a, a major crisis. So what do you do? This takes place in the land that God had given to His people. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to this place, and now there is no food. Uh, not even in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, not even there was there any food. And that day, of course, you did not just leave your homeland on a whim. Uh, your support system was there, your property was there, your inheritance, generations of family was there. But this man took his wife and two sons and left. Now, why is that significant? Well, it doesn't say that God told him to go. It doesn't say he prayed and asked for guidance. We're just told he left, and he left with the intention of coming back. That's what the word sojourn means. Uh, it is a temporary solution to an immediate problem. And though we're not told much about the famine, we are told where this man then took his family, to Moab. And Moab is an important place. It's, it's from border of Israel to border of Moab, we're talking 50 miles geographically, but it's a lot further away morally. 
Moab was much worse than Israel was at the time. They worshipped the god Chemosh. And this is the god that uh, uh, you sacrificed a baby to if you wanted to win a battle. And if you know your Old Testament history, uh, you remember that the nation of Moab was founded, the people of Moab was founded by the sin of incest between Lot and one of his daughters. So this is a place that's known for its sexual perversion and its idol worship. That's characteristic of that society. But this man took his family from the promised land to there. I would call this uh, an example of poor choices. There's some more to be made, but here is one reason for uh, life's misery, and that is poor choices. Poor choices can make life miserable, and there's all kinds of different poor choices that we can make. Notice verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now names are significant. And the name Elimelech means my God is king. In other words, the God I worship is the one who's in charge of everything. That's what his name means. And yet Elimelech runs away from trouble. He escapes the land of promise to go to the place of opportunity. And I think many of us can identify with Elimelech. That, uh, I think men particularly can be wired that way, is that we want to do something, things are bad here, let's go where things are good, I want to provide for my family, I want to fix this situation, I'm going to do something. And that's what Elimelech did, he did something. But he didn't look down the road far enough to see how these short-time de- decisions would have long-term effects and consequences. Uh, perhaps, by the way, a better standard of living uh, should not be the only factor in your decision making. Uh, perhaps uh, going to a different place should not be uh, the sole reason why you consider that. Uh, what Elimelech did is that he put his wife and sons in a worse situation, as we'll see in a moment. Now, the, the names of the sons are interesting as well. Malon means sickly, and Chilion means failing. So why would a parent do that to their children? Uh, I think that this gives us a very solid hint uh, that Elimelech was not following God very closely at all. Because these are actually Canaanite names. That's the godless culture that surrounded Israel. And, and these are Canaanite names. So Elimelech either liked how these names sounded, or maybe these were the names of famous people in that culture. It would be like uh, naming your child Miley, or LeBron, or Kylie. Uh, somebody from the culture famous, so they named them that way. But whatever the reason, the names are, are, are interesting. So off they go to this foreign land. These are poor choices. That's uh, one of the causes of life's misery. We all make them, and we don't always connect the misery that we have in the present with the decision that we made in the past, and some of us are very good at denying any connection there. Look what happens next, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So I think there's some irony here. Elimelech ran off to Moab so he wouldn't die, and he gets to Moab and he dies. Uh, Rabbinic tradition, not scripture, rabbinic tradition tells us that he was being punished for leaving the land of promise. Uh, But the text doesn't tell us that, and it doesn't tell us how long after they moved there that he died. It doesn't even tell us how he died. Was it a disease? Was he hit by a runaway ox cart? We don't know. But regardless, it is a tragic, terrible loss. 
So this brings us to another cause of misery. The second cause is painful circumstances. Uh, that can certainly bring misery in our life. And, and Naomi experiences that. In death, there's mourning and sorrow and pain. Now once Naomi gets past the grieving, however long that takes, she will still be able to survive because in the ancient world, the best form of financial stability was sons, and she had two of them. Uh, they would take care of her for the rest of her life. She could have renamed them pension and social security. That would have been much better. But verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Well, this isn't good. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why it's not good. Uh, maybe Elimelech never thought they would be in Moab long enough for something like this to happen. Yeah, it, was, it was a short-term thing, but they stayed there a lot longer. And he took his sons to a place where no one around them loved the one true God. And so it's not surprising that they marry someone from that culture. Parents, you realize that the decisions you make have big consequences in your family. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but down the road, surely. And you can easily communicate to your children that success is more important than serving God. Uh, you can communicate that kids' sports is more important than worship. That your golf game is more important than growing in your faith. That looking religious is more important than being Christ-like. And when you do that, don't be shocked when your kids grow up and choose not to follow Jesus or, or, or simply go to church for show or have no Christian friends or any spiritual life. Yesterday's poor choices can cause pain today. And then, verse 5, Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So we have the pain multiplying here. A parent buries both sons. And that grief alone is enough to make life miserable. And, and if having funerals for your husband and for your sons was not great enough pain, it also meant absolute loss of stability, financial security. So here we have a mature woman with no relatives, an immigrant. How is she going to survive? And notice something else. There were no grandchildren. Childlessness was huge in the ancient world. It was a reason for uh, men to take multiple wives and create family chaos as a result of that. And after 10 years, neither son's marriage produced children. And so Naomi is left with almost nothing in a foreign land. No one but two daughters-in-law, foreign daughters-in-law, who need to find husbands. And to be widowed and childlessness was tough enough in your own home country. But in a foreign land, this was absolute desperation. Have you been through a time where one bad thing after another strikes in your life? You no sooner have one thing happen than the next thing and the next thing. You absorb one blow and another hits you. And for many of us, painful circumstances are a source of misery. Now, in the midst of this pain, it's at this moment that Naomi hears a whisper of good news that changes things. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. This, by the way, is the first time God is mentioned in the book. Uh, he was not consulted in the choices that they made. God was not called upon in the painful circumstances that they experienced. But now the Lord had brought the famine to an end. 
It had lasted a long time, but finally things got better back in the homeland. And Naomi wastes no time. She immediately escaped this God-forsaken country and, and left behind three graves. And verses 7 and following, the daughters-in-law start off down the road with her. But Naomi urges them to stop. She, she blesses them in God's name and prays that they will go find new husbands. And both of the girls refuse to leave Naomi's side. Naomi doesn't want them to suffer along with her. She cares so much for them that she wants them to start life again, even though that will in itself make it life harder for her. Verse 12, uh, Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? So Naomi's looking at this from a practical standpoint. And if the girls stay with her, they would have no future, no hope. She doesn't have any. And she doesn't want to share her bleak prospects with these two women. And then look at the other reason Naomi wants them to leave. Verse uh, 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi's saying, God's out to get, get me. God has it in for me, and you guys got caught in the crossfire of God's vendetta against me. And I wonder how, how many of us can identify with Naomi's feelings right now. Uh, you, you get hit with one miserable circumstance after another. You, you, you experience catastrophe uh, after catastrophe. And you, you, you feel, why is God against me? That's Naomi. And she doesn't want these girls she loves to stick around with her. She's not expecting good things from God at all. Verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So everybody cries, and the girls take two different courses of action. Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. Despite everything, Ruth would not leave. Now, do not fault Orpah for leaving, but admire Ruth for staying. And as Naomi continues to try and convince her to do otherwise, Ruth makes this great little speech that used to be used in weddings all the time, and I'm not sure why. Uh, verse 16, where you go, Ruth says, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So despite the grief and the pain, Ruth has seen Naomi's life. She's seen her faith. She's seen her God. And in fact, in the very next sentence of that verse, Ruth calls on the name of the one true God, Yahweh. And so Ruth has this faith that, that she has seen in her mother-in-law, and she looks at this very same dismal future that Naomi does, and she says, let's go. She's ready to, to trust Yahweh. And so they continue the journey to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, the women of this town are, are buzzing uh, with questions. They wonder, is this the same Naomi who left so long ago, a decade ago? And here's her response, verse 20. Uh, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi's name, by the way, means pleasant. And she takes this opportunity to emphasize the unpleasantness of her life right now, and she attributes this to God. God this to, did this to me. Now, I don't believe that Naomi was previously a bitter person. Uh, otherwise, her daughter-in-law would not have wanted to stick around with her. I don't think she was bitter before, but these circumstances, her crushing grief, bad circumstances, overshadowed Naomi's vision of God's goodness. Notice how she describes the situation, verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now notice here, she seems to hint that leaving in the first place was not God's idea. I went out 
full. And the Lord, she gives God credit for the emptying of her life. And she might be saying that all this bad stuff, that's God's punishment for the wrong decision to leave. And she views all of the, the pain and the loss as something God did to her. So here's another cause of our misery. Wrong theology. That's the third way in which we can experience misery in our lives. Wrong theology. See, what you think, theology is your belief of God. What's true about God. And what's true about God and what you believe about that is the reason some people can recover from poor choices and pain and other people cannot recover. See, what you believe about God shapes your suffering. It shapes your suffering. God is in absolute control, but He's also absolutely good. And if you believe both of those things, uh, then you can survive. If, if you don't believe that God is in control then life is a jumble of random events without meaning and without purpose. And if you, you don't believe that God is good, then life is a, a series of cruel circumstances where God gets you back for whatever you did or didn't do. So the reality is, if you believe in a good God who is in control, then you know that everything that happens is a purpose beyond your understanding. God is using those things to make you more like Jesus, to achieve His greater plan. No suffering is ever wasted by God. It's never pointless, no matter how miserable it is. Theologian Bruce Ware said that for the believer, there are simply no accidents or tragedies in which God is a passive bystander. He never helplessly watches while some tragedy occurs, wishing it were different. Rather, God is at work to bring about good. That's what God does. And the cross is the greatest example of that. It was horrible and tragic and seemingly senseless, but it was far from pointless. It was the plan of a good God made before the foundation of the world. The bloody sacrifice of Jesus is the way of our salvation. The betrayal, the arrest, the torture, the execution of Jesus was complete misery. Yet that was God's plan for saving all who believe. And for all who put their trust in Jesus alone, He has conquered sin and death and hell. God was in charge of that horror which became the greatest good. And Naomi struggled the way that many Christians, maybe you struggle today. She still believed God was in charge but she had trouble believing that God was good. Grief and pain kept her from seeing the evidence of God's goodness. She saw only emptiness, hopelessness, and grief. So look how the chapter ends. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So now we're getting a little hint about how God's at work here, even though Naomi doesn't see it. She's not alone. Ruth is with her. Uh, the barley harvest is beginning. So God's at work in the season of barley harvest, as we'll see later in the story. And He's at work in world history. Because from this foreign daughter-in-law, the Savior of the world would come. You see, often when God seems absent, uh, He is working on a plan beyond our imagining. And if Naomi could only see what God was doing, what all of this would mean, she could see that through Ruth she would have a, a, a grandson and that this boy would be the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel. And from that king would, would come the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. See, God was writing a story far bigger than Naomi. And her misery was part of the plot of history. There was more going on than she could ever imagine. Now, which part of this story can you identify with the most? Is it the poor choices of Elimelech? 
You say God is king, and yet you live like you're king. Faced with challenges, confronted by trouble, you search for a way out. You make an escape plan. And not a lot of praying goes into that decision. Because you've got to act fast. You've got to be in charge. You've got to be your own savior. And so you go over there where the money is, or the better opportunity. Life is better. Uh, you, you've got to fix things. And, and you don't think about long-term consequences or, or, or spiritual realities. So you'll just go there for a little while until the economy approves, improves. You, you'll take a cash advance to get what you feel you need. You'll pay it back next month. You let the kids hang out with whoever they want yeah, you let them date anyone uh, just, they, just because there are more important things that you have to do that you're concerned about it doesn't end well poor choices or maybe you can identify with the painful circumstances experienced here uh, you've been diagnosed you're you're undergoing treatment you're unemployed you're looking for a job you're enduring a relationship that's destructive it's volatile or you're in a relationship where you've been cheated on or, or you've been excluded. Or you've been at the bedside of a loved one as they pass from this life in suffering. Or you've made the journey to, to a graveside and you've felt the heaviness and, of, of grief, the loss, the disappointment, the loneliness, the misery. Painful circumstances. But I wouldn't be surprised if most of us felt like Naomi. You believe, but you're bitter. You think, sure, I've made some mistakes, but why didn't God stop me? I mean, God could have prevented this bad marriage. God could have given me the right job. God could have healed me. Why does God let all this happen to me? I believe, and yet God's against me. Maybe that's how you feel. And that happens to all of us at one time or another. No matter how much we love God, we experience things that are the opposite of what we want. And it's easy to get angry and bitter and resentful because you've developed some wrong theology and like Naomi you think God's in charge but he's mean he's out to get me and, and by the way I think it was a good thing that Naomi like, spilled her guts to a group of old friends being able to unburden yourself to others is is a good thing C.S. Lewis wrote I, I've learned that while those who speak about miseries usually hurt those who keep silence hurt more so I think telling God about your pain and having others with whom you can share your pain is helpful. And for the, Naomi, the fact that she was honest with the women of Bethlehem makes it even more wonderful when these women get to see the, the ending of her story, the, the blessing that God brings about. And the fact that, that Naomi shared her grief made the joy that much greater. So today, maybe you're embittered against God. Maybe you need to share that pain with other people of God. There you will find support and you will increase the number of witnesses to what God will do. If life is miserable for you, if you are frustrated, if you're bitter, let me encourage you to be honest about your pain and misery and cry out to God. See, in your misery, trust the God who is absolutely sovereign and absolutely good. Both of those realities must be in your mind and heart. That's what Ruth does. Things don't look any better for Ruth than they do Naomi. But she decides to trust Yahweh, to, to keep going, following Yahweh no matter what. So here's the bottom line for us today, this morning. Uh, let me put it in these terms. Life is miserable because you want something or someone more than you want Jesus. Now, think about that for a moment. Something that you're hungering for, you're infatuated with, you're desperate for, is something other than the love of God in Christ. It might be a relationship. 
It might be a career. It might be a feeling, a standard of living, a level of success, a a degree, a spouse, a thrilling experience, a better life, a a healing to your body, a, a stable marriage, a bigger income, a little more security, a sense of purpose. Whatever that is, you want that more. And so maybe you've made some poor choices in order to get that thing or that person you want more than you want Jesus. Today you need to repent of any attempt to be your own king. Maybe your painful circumstances have have caused you to want relief more than you want Jesus. You're suffering right now and it's painful and you want that relief more than you want Jesus. It's time to be honest with God. Pour out your complaints to Him. Share that with others who love you enough to pray with you. Or maybe you've created some bad theology to cope with your misery. You've had trouble seeing the goodness of God. Trouble believing that He can still be in control and all this mess that you're experiencing. But whether or not your life is miserable today, what you need is worship and confession and honesty and praise to the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today is the day to declare, you are my sovereign God, and apart from you, I have no good thing. I invite you to do that today around the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we meet around the bread and the cup today, we ask that uh, our minds would be upon you and that we would trust you in all and every situation for your glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning, we have the privilege of eating and drinking in remembrance of our Savior. This bread and this cup are those tangible, multi-sensory reminders that we need to to be reminded that we are not our own Savior. There is one Savior, and His name is Jesus, and He has done all for us. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. By His sacrifice on the cross, He made it possible for us to be called the sons and daughters of the living God. And so if your faith and trust is in Jesus today, you are invited, you are urged to eat and drink in remembrance of Him. 